life is one big experiment. And so if we haven't tried something, then that's introducing another experiment. It's a new experience. It's a surprise. Um, it's a path that we haven't yet explored. Um, and I think that that's really the thing that reminds us that we're alive, you know. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Madeline Dorr is a podcast host, writer and blogger who's interested in the rhythms and stumbles in our daily lives. In her new book, I Didn't Do the Thing Today, Madeline makes the case for letting go of productivity guilt, for living a happier and calmer life. It's a lesson that's built on a whole series of interviews that she's done and her own life experiments, which we'll explore in this conversation today. Madeline, thanks for joining me on the Good Life podcast. Thank you, Andrew. It's lovely to discuss all things good life with you. So tell me a bit about yourself. How did you, uh, how did you come to this? Where did you, where did you grow up? What got you interested in guilt and productivity? <laughs> well, I think it was many, many days spent not doing the thing that I told myself I would be doing at a specific time <laughs> um, that led to exploring this idea of productivity guilt. But I think to sort of rewind a little bit before the book, uh, there was very much a, I was quite mystified by how people built creative careers and how people paved their way as writers or artists and followed a, or carved a path for themselves. And so more than half a decade ago, I was finding it difficult to find work in my chosen career as a journalist. And I saw the power of starting a creative project or a side project of your own. So when you can't find the job you want, um, create it for yourself. And so I started my interview project, Extraordinary Routines, both as a way to start building a portfolio as a, as a journalist and as a writer, but really to go back to this, this clarifying, this mystified um, uh, question that I had about how do people spend their days? What do their days look like? what do they do? When do they do it? How do they do it? Because I felt like I was getting it wrong. I didn't know um, how to approach my career and my days. And there's that wonderful quote by Annie Dillard, which is how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. Mm. And so I thought if I could find out how people that I admired spend their days, then maybe I could pick up the secret to being more productive, to being more prolific as a writer, uh, and then apply that to my day and, and then also be productive and prolific. Um, so it was, yeah, really born out of this idea of I felt like I was getting it wrong. I was looking for clues from other people um, and searching for the secret to productivity myself. There's quite a bit of psychology in the book. It's uh, sort of a bit Jungian at times. Did you, uh, did you study psychology? Do you have an interest in psychology? I do definitely have an interest and it's been a self-study in terms of delving into my own psychoanalysis um, with a professional, of course. But I, <laughs> I think that what's beautiful about things like Jungian psychology is that there are so many ways that you can uh, apply it to yourself in terms of um, studying your own dreams, um, looking for ways to explore your own unconscious mind. So even things like Morning Pages, which comes from The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, can be a really powerful tool to get in touch or have a meeting with yourself. Uh, so I'm definitely, I definitely gravitate towards, I suppose, those self-reflective tools or texts or studies uh, or streams of thought and thinking, um, I find it quite interesting that these existential quandaries um, uh, aren't just unique to our modern busy lives. Uh, there's many, many um, grapplings that we've had for centuries, it seems, when you return to these, these studies. 
So I've I've read a lot of books uh, in, in this sort of vein of uh, of life everything from life hacks to uh, uh, considering how we can use social media better. And, and one of the things that really strikes me about yours, Madeline, is that it's a a very kind book. I felt like oh. the sort of advice that came through was the kind of advice that I would get from. Uh, a gentle parent or grandparent rather than from a prescriptive uh, sports coach or career coach. Is that how you wanted the, uh, the, the book to come across? That's really lovely. I, I'm not a grandparent myself, so to be able to channel into that, that's a, <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. So to be kind, I think um, that that is really kind of you to say, Andrew, but also I think that maybe that's um, what I have seen could be a powerful antidote in this era of really prescriptive, rigid, um, very, as you say, sports coach-like rhetoric in terms of, you know, hustle, work harder, grind, like all of that language really is quite disciplinarian. Um, and so maybe this alternative of more of a gentle grandparent or friend um, is definitely a voice that I have felt like I've needed. And and the book is self-help and maybe in the truest sense of that it was helping myself as well. So um, maybe it's the kindest voice that I have in my mind coming through to to console. Yeah, I mean, it, it struck me as the sort of the difference between uh, the advice that I give myself and the advice I give my kids. As, as, a, as a dad of three, I often have to remind myself uh, that the number one thing that kids need from their parents is not life advice, it's love. Uh, and that often when they come to you with uh, with concerns, uh, they don't really need you to solve their problems. They just need you to give them a hug. Uh, and so, you know, for example, I thought it was interesting that uh, you talk about the importance of rhythms rather than routines. Can you expand a little bit on, on that distinction and, and why you, you're plumped for, for the notion of rhythms? Yeah, I think that rhythms have this inherent flexibility to them or almost a, a malleability there, there there is a pattern but it's not rigid necessarily and I think that we we sort of fall into a rhythm sometimes and we can we can feel that in ourselves when when our days have sort of a a, a swing or a beat um, when we feel like we're in our element essentially but the rhythms can change and so I speak about rhythms because I I place them in a cycle that I identified by exploring people's routines, but also seeing that there's this really close relationship between a routine and a rut. The definitions of the two words themselves really overlap. So the a routine um, or, or a rut rather is is a, is a pattern or a, a groove that's well-worn and a routine, if we're doing the same thing day after day, that's a well-worn well-worn path as well um, and so it's interesting because I think that we really put routine on a pedestal but at the same time it can be the very thing that lands us in a rut doing the same thing day by day or having that groundhog day feeling and so then we kind of find ourselves um, stuck in a rut and needing that shift or that change and so the part of the cycle that I see is that Routine can be really grounding, but after a while we can get stuck in that rut and we need that nudge to come along. So something to shift us out of our ordinary way of doing things or something that's become tired um, and that that change or that momentum or that movement when we're stagnant can be really powerful and that's what can land us back in a new rhythm. <laughs> um, so the rhythm is really dis um, that distinguished distinguishing from that that rut um, that we can find ourselves in and and I think that the rhythm also really speaks to how we can see different seasons in our lives be it our working lives or our relationships or our family or our social lives it's often seasons that we're sort of cycling through and a, a routine can be so linear and it can sort of imply um, this stagnant sort of feeling whereas a rhythm you almost get the sense of it being secular secular um cyclical, cyclical. <laughs> there yeah, we go yeah. like the seasons so i think that that's um that's why i sort of gravitate to to rhythm it's so interesting you mentioned seasons because we've just come into summer and I'm one of these people that basically believes that uh, there are two seasons. There is summer and there is waiting for summer. Uh, and much as I, I do my best to kind of appreciate each of the other seasons, 
uh, there's, you know, I, I, I love the long days, uh, not having to worry about too many clothes, being able to exercise, exercise uh, much, more, much more freely uh, in summer. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm yet to develop that, that full appreciation for uh, all of the seasons, despite living in Canberra, which, you know, really changes a lot physically season to season. Mm, that's interesting. Do you find that when so there's there's summer and then there's longing for summer? Yeah, exactly. And that... most of life is, of course, longing for summer, right? Three quarters of yeah, it by definition. Exactly. So in in many ways, do you find that um, when the summer arrives, do you appreciate it as much as you thought, or is it actually there's a beauty in the longing itself? So thereby, those seasons where you're waiting for summer have a glimmer just through this longing. Ah, great question. So um, I have tried to employ that bit of psychology in booking holidays earlier. And so we as a family can anticipate the holidays for longer. But I haven't really nailed it with uh, with summer. Uh, if it's cold, and I know summer is four months away, uh, then I don't gain any happiness from uh, from, from the from the impending summer. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and in fact, it gets worse than that, because as summer comes to a close, I begin to uh, experience a sense of, uh, uh, lo- uh, of loss, even before the, te- the, the, the warmth has gone out of the days. Um, mm. So, uh, so yes, I think I need greater appreciation of the uh, the, the days for you, uh, the, <laughs> the, the seasons, as you've uh, you've said. But let me push you a little bit on the um, the routine thing because I've always had this idea that um, if you can systematize a bunch of things in your life, like the when you exercise, what you eat, what you what you wear, um, even you know when have regular catch ups with friends, then it frees you to be more creative in other parts of your life. Isn't there mm-hmm. a risk that if everything's rhythm, then it becomes much harder to to be truly creative. Like if you look mm. at great artists, great writers, very often they've just got that routine of show up at the desks, show up at the studio, uh, seven o'clock in the morning, spend four hours. Um, they've got a routine, and, and out of that routine, creativity flourishes. Mm. Well. That's what I thought, Andrew. So that's sort of what I was searching for um, many years ago when I started my project, Extraordinary Routines. I was hoping that I would find those those systems and those regular routines that artists would have. And then very quickly when I started having these conversations with people, many would reveal that, well, they'd sort of whisper, they'd say, I know that you're interviewing me about my routine, but I don't really have one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you talk about how you really enjoyed that, you know, when... when <laughs> top people told you that they made mistakes. Yes, exactly, because we're all human and and I could sort of have that peek behind the highlight reel and see that here I was searching for this routine or feeling like I was the only person who wasn't sticking to one, Um, but then I found myself in in great company. And so I think I absolutely agree with you in terms of this idea of when we can systemize things and we can... um, I suppose, automate different habits and it becomes um, sort of seamless in our days, that can be really wonderful because it does free us up. Um, And that's where so much of the advice um, can be really helpful. But the trick is that it doesn't do us any favours if we're not able to stick to those plans for ourselves. And so sometimes we can set the bar so high and we can say, well, I'm going to systematize my exercise and I'm going to show up at eight o'clock and work for four hours and I'm I'm going to meal prep um, all of my meals and then we have this rigid plan for ourselves that you know one sort of thing might sort of knock to the side and all topples over and that's when we can encounter this idea of productivity guilt because we had this plan for ourselves but then life happened the day unfolded differently to how we expected or we weren't able to stick to the systemization of of whatever we've set um and then once we're in that spiral of productivity guilt that can be incredibly difficult to unravel from so i think it's it's wonderful if if you find yourself being able to implement these systems but I think that it's something, it's almost become a fool's errand in some cases in that if only I could systematize, then my life would be far more prolific and efficient and I would be a better person and I would have everything sorted out and I would find myself, I'd be perfect. But the thing is that the the, the bar is always moving along. So I don't know, I haven't, it's been, it was really kind of comforting to see that there's, I find that there's more people that don't have a routine than um, did in my in my interviews and in my research. Um, 
and even those that might have a routine imposed on them, say working uh, set hours nine to five, um, there can be this pressure to make sure that the weekends or that spare time, free time is systematized. Um, And again, that can be really great for efficiency and making sure that you have time for things that you want to do. But it's when things don't go to plan and we berate ourselves for it that I think can be the stumbling block. So I, I kind of have a different view to you when I hear about uh, incredibly talented people who admit to wasting time. Uh, that just makes me think that they, they must be even smarter than me, even, much, even more of a genius, uh, and that given I'm basically not, the only way a chance I have of making any contribution is to work really hard and be really organised. Um, so, uh, so, so, great, a great artist skiving, skiving off uh, makes me feel more inadequate rather than uh, like I can, I can copy them. Interesting. Yeah, um, I can see how that would that would be internalised that way. Um, so, so how do you find that then that you're someone who's able to stick to the systemizations of things? Oh, yeah, I'm much, much more systematized than, than you are, which, and, and, um, therefore that was one of the things that I really appreciated in your book in, in that sort of, um, the, the gentleness, you have a notion of splodge time too, which I think for anyone who's a parent or suffering from, a chronic illness is is really important. Tell us about splodge time. Yes, so t- splodge time is the frame that I've borrowed after reading um, "What Days Are For" by Robert Dussel, and it really helped to frame. So we we see time as this linear, you know, twenty four hours on a clock, and you know we can uh, almost pin different goals and tasks to every hour. Um, and we sort of see the day unfolding in this this uninterrupted way with the time. But often when the day unfolds, we wonder where the time goes or we feel like time is slipping away for, from us or we don't have enough time or we, we are waiting for more time to arrive. Um, but I think that time is slippery and then so are we within time. And so for me, uh, time as being more like a splodge rather than this perfect hour was really helpful as a frame for me. So it can spill out in all directions. The way that sometimes a minute can feel like the longest minute um, or sometimes it can feel like an hour can disappear um, before us. So time can be, uh, it can really change. And so splodge time has this um, flexibility to it and this, this um, again, this malleability that I think um, is a running theme throughout the book. And so when you think about time as a splodge, uh, you're able to, rather than pinning each task to specific hours, you're able to seize different splodges as they arrive in front of you. And so I speak about um, something that I borrowed from Becky Orpen, who is a uh, an artist in Melbourne, and I she's often asked how she fits it all in. She's from the outside, looks incredibly busy, incredibly prolific, gets a lot done, is always working on a lot of projects at one time. And so I put that question to her in terms of how she fits it all in. And she said that she's just become very good at grabbing time when it's available to her. So if she does have 15 minutes spare, instead of thinking, oh, it's only 15 minutes, there's not much I can get done in 15 minutes, she will grab that. So she'll seize that splodge in front of her rather than waiting uh, for the perfect swath of time to arrive. I think there can be such a tendency to, uh, when we do pin tasks to hours, we can wait for that hour um, and waste the time in between. And so it's actually just taking the moments as we get them rather than thinking that we need a whole clear run of time um, before we can get started with something. And all of that adds up, I think, all the little splodges form. Um, But because they're imperfect, I think it, it helps us get over this idea of waiting for the perfect time to arrive. Yes, and I think you uh, you mentioned once on your podcast uh, the way in which 
great writers will often stop mid-thought. Uh, Hemingway apparently even used to stop mid-sentence uh, in order to be able to pick up quickly uh, at, the, uh, at, at the next opportunity. Uh, and that probably helps with splodges. Uh, you're, uh, you don't have to take half an hour to, uh, to work out where you're at. Uh, you can use that next little chunk of time, uh, even if it comes uh, during just a, a, a baby, baby's nap or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a, that um, Hemingway tip that you just mentioned in terms of stopping midway through something. I think that's a great um, reminder that it's it's we can struggle a lot with knowing how to start something that can be the biggest hurdle. And often how we stop can help us again in terms of how we start. So we have that thread, which means we don't have the fear of the blank page uh, if, we've, if we can just continue on from something that we were working on. Um, but I think yeah, so the two go hand in hand is is knowing how to stop so that you can start, but also this idea of splodge time or just seizing the moment that you have in front of you, again, can be this really great way to trick yourself into starting. Um, because in many ways, there's so many life hacks out there, but maybe we need life tricks, really. Um, and so sometimes when I'm really struggling to seize that splodge in front of me I'll just put on a two-minute timer and say I'll just do something for the next two minutes and that's enough of a trick to kind of find the momentum and often I find myself working for more than that two minutes so finding ways to start and stop can be helpful. In your uh, the chapter The Myth of Balance you talk about the importance of embracing the wobble. What do you mean by that? Well, again, this is, yeah, about that um, malleability that we all have. So I think that there's such a striving for work-life balance. So we say that once we find balance, again, that's all, that will be when our, our lives um, are rendered perfect or I just need a little bit more work-life balance and then I'll feel better. So it's, again, something we place on a pedestal um, as a solution for all of the ailments of our modern lives. Um but again, balance is kind of elusive. So w how do we actually measure either side of a pendulum as well? How much, if we sort of are working too much, then how do we subtract work to then add more life? It's sort of, we're not um, equating equal things because the components of our lives look so different. And so balance can be quite an elusive thing to achieve. But then even if we did land at balance, would be stagnant. And is that something that we really want to aspire to? And so in many ways, I think that we're constantly wobbling um, between the different components of our lives or different priorities or even interruptions and distractions, um, different desires. Um, so it's, it's that wobble again. And so instead of striving for balance, which would then mean that we're stuck, <laughs> uh, we can embrace the wobble um, from either side and even engineer it towards different parts. Um, I think that that can be sort of, a, a, again, this kind of way to look at the different parts of our lives and see that, again, it's sort of like having different seasons, isn't it? It's, it's so, okay, so at, in this season of my life, I'm, I'm wobbling a little bit more toward, towards work, but I have booked that holiday for two weeks and so that's when I can wobble back to the life part. I like the idea of, uh, of wobbling back uh, and, uh, and it reminds me of uh, something I was listening to the other day in a, um, an audio book of, uh, about astronomy where it was making the point that uh, if the Earth didn't have the moon going around it, uh, it would be a much more unstable planet. Uh, so we get we get stability. Not we don't just get tides out of having the moon go go around us, but we also uh, get to live on a much more stable planet as a result of this uh, uh, relatively large rock spinning around us. Mm. Um, you have um, you you quote Patrick McGuinness uh, talking about something he calls phobo, uh, fear of better options. Uh, how how tell us about that problem and and how you deal with it. Mm. So Patrick McGuinness also came up with the more popular term FOMO, so the fear of missing out. Really? I, I never knew who came up with FOMO. That's great. Yeah. It's, um, so it's, a, it's another um, counterpart to that. And so 
FOBO, which is the fear of better options, really speaks to this indecision spiral that we can get into. And so often um, we can have so many different choices and options that it can become quite difficult to make a decision on any because we're still sort of optimizing our search for the best possible option and delaying making a decision in case we make a mistake. And so there's this fear that if we make a decision and another option will arise and we'll regret our decision. So we're then caught in a standstill of indecision because of all the different options we're facing. Um, and so it's, it comes back to that, that uh, idea of this, this paradox of choice that we can face. The, we, um, choices can be a, a wonderful thing, an empowering thing, but too many, we can become stuck in that indecision. And these can be small daily decisions that we encounter, or they can be big life decisions that we can still get caught in this fear of better options. And unlike FOMO, um, Patrick McGuinness pointed out that FOMO can actually be a positive thing in terms of um, it, it can alert us to what it is that we want in life. If we're fearing missing out on something, then maybe we can pursue that thing that we're feeling like we're missing out on. Whereas FOBO, the fear of better options, he describes it as a, an affliction of affluence, essentially. And, and it's if you have options um, it's and you're stuck in this fear of better options and this standstill, there's really no good that can come out of that because um, you're, you're not taking any opportunities. You're stuck. Uh, and so he has some great suggestions to get out of this indecision spiral and to train this muscle of decision making, uh, which I found really interesting that it's something that we can train. And so even with daily decisions, something as simple as flipping a coin um, about what it is that you want for lunch and then sticking to that decision, that's training that muscle so that you're not then lamenting, oh, I wish that I actually had a salad instead of that sandwich um, and get used to that that decision-making process. Um, and I think that that's something that I've really tried to embrace is this idea of we don't actually know where our decisions will lead. There's no such thing as the right decision because we don't know how one decision is then linked to the next and the next and the next. It's sort of connecting very hazy dots only when we're looking back. Um, and so just being able to sort of make any decision can actually be the thing that provides momentum and then um, keep us going forward rather than being stuck. Yes, when I was in the States, one of my professors was seconded from Harvard to the White House Council of Economic Advisors, and he said he he went back, came back after a couple of years in Washington from an environment in which he was making a dozen really important decisions every day to an environment in which he would make a couple of moderately important decisions every month. Uh, but he said he was very quick at making those decisions because his decision-making muscle had uh, had improved significantly. So he just make the decision, move on, uh, no regrets, no di no dilly dallying. Um, so as you say, the more decisions you, uh, you you make, the better you get at it. Um, and you also have uh, you have a lovely rule from uh, May West. What's uh, what's May West's rule for decision making? <laughs> oh, if you're choosing between two evils, choose the one that you haven't tried. <laughs> and why is that good advice? Because I think it's all about new experiences. I think I think the essence of what I've uncovered through all the conversations I've had is, is really about how we can be more embracing of the fact that life is one big experiment. And so if we haven't tried something, then that's introducing another experiment. It's a new experience. It's a surprise. Um, it's a path that we haven't yet explored. Um, and I think that that's really the thing that reminds us that we're alive, you know. Um, uh, we are on a planet that's um, got a moon orbiting it um, and we're travelling around the sun and, and we sort of have this one opportunity to to experience things and to experiment. And so... Yeah, I think the new path is always um, the one of curiosity and I think that that's something that we can easily overlook in our busy, productive, optimised days and it's the, that, that very thing that can help shake them up a little bit. Uh, Madeline, in your chapter, The Great Disappointment of Expectation, you uh, talk about uh, uh, your own list of 100 things you wanted to do before you turned 30 uh, and about the importance of, um, as you put it, holding plans lightly. 
why should we be a little less prescriptive about our plans? Well, because they can be very easily upended, as I soon discovered after making this very elaborate Excel spreadsheet of all of my life plans and life goals. Um, there was over a hundred things that I wanted to accomplish before I was 30 and I was 27 and a half at the time of writing this elaborate spreadsheet. So I gave myself two and a half years to achieve these hundred things and I allocated them to six month intervals so that I could get there on time. Um, and uh, <laughs> I think I crossed off a couple of things on that spreadsheet at the, at the set time that I'd put on there um, because life unfolds so differently um, to how we expect. Um, and so instead of having this very rigid Excel spreadsheet of plans, I um, f- uh, switched those, expe- or they were actually expectations for myself in, in, in that plan. And so I saw that what can be really helpful is switching in expectation, uh, which has a very set way of how things will happen and is quite prescriptive into an intention. And so that often um, has far more feeling into it and more flexibility. And so I can hold a plan lightly by holding it as an intention. Um, And there's um, a lot more opportunity for life to surprise you that way. And I think I learned very quickly that actually the most exciting or the most um, rewarding opportunities aren't something that I had planned for or I didn't actually have them itemized in my spreadsheet. Um, They were a surprise. And I think that that was a common theme with the people that I've interviewed is that very few had a plan for how their career would unfold. Um, It really was just taking opportunity by opportunity and ending up ending up somewhere that from the um, outside looking in is looks like an incredible sparkling trajectory, um, but behind it was no set plan necessarily, uh, and that can be the most exciting thing. So I've put plans to the side in order to just hold intentions lightly and have more room for surprises. So there is a view which is a bit different from yours, which is that. Uh, the greatest enemy to us achieving our top two goals is the rest of the goals on the spreadsheet. Um, And this goes back to to an anecdote about Warren Buffett being asked by his pilot um, how he should go about achieving his goals in life. And Buffett says, write down a list of the five things you most want to achieve, uh, choose the top two, and then actively don't do numbers three, four, and five, uh, because if you try and do all five, you'll, you'll achieve none of them well, uh, and that your greatest enemy is numbers three, four, is priorities three, four, and five. Um, do you? What's what's your view on that? It, that sounds kind of different from the uh, the more relaxed, serendipitous approach that you have to achieving life goals. Oh, I think there's a bit of overlap in terms of. Um you know, learning very quickly that we can't have that very elaborate 100 list thing and even even five things, if according to Warren Buffett. Um, so I think that what is wonderful about that advice is really reducing reducing things down and acknowledging that we we have limited time, attention, um, energy, and really we can only focus on one thing at a time. So um, I think that that's what I've sort of come to see is that we can only focus on that one moment in front of us or one task in front of us uh, and how the rest unfolds or how the plan will be um, coming to fruition is, is sort of, that's just projection really. We can, we can do the thing in front of us. So maybe I'd take that advice and cross off two to five and just have that one thing um, at a time. And so I think there's um, that's, yeah, something that I've really looked at doing and switching my to-do lists from these elaborate long lists into just that one thing that I can do in this one moment. And again, that goes back nicely to um, this idea of seizing that splodge in front of us. So not only do we seize the splodge in front of us, but we we use it for that one thing at a time. Um, and so that that can be really helpful, I think. And um, and and the rest, I think, does just uh, you know splodge by splodge um, is is how we can be directed through our lives. One of the uh, bits of advice that I really enjoy is in the chapter "The Trap of Busyness," where you talk about the importance of quitting. 
Uh, why do we need to quit more and, and why do we find it so hard? Hmm. I think that the, the quitting or the stopping can be really powerful because it does go back to this idea of the fact that we have limited time um, and say we did have those five things on our list and then we whittled them down to two or we little, whittled it down to that one thing that we need to do in this one moment. I think we can um, sometimes become quite exhausted or quite overwhelmed or even quite bored of the the thing that we've set for ourselves if it's become an old or expired goal. Um, so we might have had that list, but maybe we've changed and we, we no longer have that as our top priority um, or we've, we've tried something and we found that it's not for us. And so being able to, to quit something or to let go of something um, can be really powerful because it means that we can start that list afresh in a way that, that suits the current versions of ourselves better um, and we can use our limited time in a way that actually um, is congruent with who we've become um, and we can prioritise the things that we really want to be doing rather than the things that we think we should be doing either because of, uh, you know, past us thought it would be a good idea um, or someone else um, had this expectation of us. And so really being able to assess the things that we have on our to-do list um, or even our relationships or our career or or other sort of bigger life questions or bigger life um, goals uh, regularly and often is is probably quite an important um, task so that we make sure that we we aren't just lugging around expired goals in our days that takes up our time and adds to our busyness and adds to the overwhelm. it, it can be quite powerful to just potentially do a reset on those lists. So I regularly um, write out everything that I'm carrying in my mind um, when I'm in those moments of overwhelm or feeling like I'm just too busy, as, as some of us can feel. Um, and if once I sort of write all that down on the page, I can really see it in front of me, which are the things that are expired or don't actually need to happen right now or I can completely cross off my to-do list or I can can quit because it's 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 not no longer serving me um and obviously there's some nuance there in terms of we can't quit everything um sometimes straight away um uh and there there's a difference I think between responsibilities and and shoulds um but I think we can also probe ourselves and really ask whether it is something that we need to be carrying over to tomorrow's to-do list or whether we can just let go and maybe we can surprise ourselves by seeing that there are different tasks that are making us feel busy but don't need to be there it's worth probing absolutely so i interviewed uh, cal newport on the podcast a while back and i was just actually this morning going through editing the transcript of the interview for a, a magazine called Podcast Reader, uh, which will be featuring it in an upcoming issue. And uh, so I was thinking a lot about his advice and yours. And I think where, where they really diverge is, uh, is on social media. Um, you're relatively sanguine about it. Um, you say you shouldn't, uh, shouldn't beat yourself up for, uh, for spend, spending time browsing, browsing Instagram or browsing social media, whereas Cal really does see it as being something that undermines our ability to uh, live a, a life of, of pleasure and meaning, uh, and in particular prevents us from doing deep work. Uh, he, he would argue that uh, if you're uh, gentle on yourself for going down the uh, uh, net, Netflix burrow or from spe- spending half a day on Facebook, then ultimately you will end up frittering away your time and, and you'll end up less happy because you're in this kind of constant state of distraction. Um, why? What's, what's, your, what's your answer to that? Interesting. I'll, I'll just pause to, um, is there a particular chapter where you think that I've sort of been advocating for the social media scroll? Uh, you're not advocating. You're not, you're not advocating on it, Madeline, but you're, you're as, as you are throughout the book, you're very kind mm. about people <laughs> towards people who, fear, who fall down the uh, uh, social media rabbit hole. Um, okay. You say that... You know, the impression I get is that people shouldn't uh, uh, sh- shouldn't beat themselves up on on that. Uh, you do talk about digital detoxes, but um, as with most things in your book, um, you pr- tend to proffer the advice quite 
gently and, and you're not particularly prescriptive. Whereas mm -hmm. I think if there was one thing I would be prescriptive of, about if I was writing a book like this, it would be spend less time on social media. It's designed by really cunning people who know how to exploit your psychological biases uh, in a way that you will get addicted to their technologies and end up less happy and fulfilled. Mm, exactly. So that's why I was a bit surprised that it's come across that way um, because I, I, I would definitely sort of like to lean more towards Cal Newport's um, notion because, again, we do have such limited time and, and to fritter away on a screen that is essentially buying our attention, um, it, it, it does feel like, quote, unquote, a waste of time. And so in the distraction chapter, I, I sort of speak to this idea that maybe it is that distraction is inevitable. So the human mind is distractible. Um, and perhaps um, between the lines, maybe our biggest distraction for many people is social media. So you could put in social media in, in that chapter, but I definitely mean any broad distraction and even interruptions from family life or um, uh, various internal distractions even. So even our feelings can be distracting um, from the work that we need to get done. And so I think that the kindness is really about acknowledging that it is human to be distracted. So I think that um, what can be really detrimental is when we have found ourselves in a moment of distraction and say we have, you know, spent 20 minutes on social media um, scrolling scrolling the Instagram feed and, and being hooked in, I think um, what can be really detrimental is that layer of guilt afterwards. Um, so then saying, oh, well, I've I've scrolled for 20 minutes and so now I've lost that time and oh, and then and and then spiraling further and then well I may as well just you know keep checking and, and then an hour goes by and then it's like well I've I've wasted the, the morning and oh and then, then you can kind of do a bit of a pile on effect of um um because you've wasted that moment it sort of grows and grows and grows and and that's where the worry of wasted time can come in um where instead of saying, okay, well, yes, I've wasted that 20 minutes, but it's a new moment now and I can um, turn my attention to what it is that I need to do, um, that that can be the, 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 the bigger waste of time is that worry about wasting it. And so in that distraction chapter, I speak about how it's human that we are distracted and maybe instead of trying to eliminate our distractions, because even those people that have designed them struggle to put their devices away, um, maybe we can look at managing our attention as the antidote to the distraction. And so um, really directing our attention rather than trying to trying to and fail um, in terms of our um, limiting our social media feed. Because even though we all know not to, we do. And so it's avoiding that spiral um, and instead looking at what it is that we want to give our attention to because then there's less time for distraction if we are managing our attention well. And so I even speak about creating something like an attention hour where you can spend an hour assessing what it has been that you've been given your giving your attention to. And then if you see, wow, I've given my given social media um, attention for five hours on average per day, which can be frightening to see um, when you look at your phone calculating the the time spent on social media. If you see it all in front of you and, and you've given your attention to what you've been um, paying attention to, that's when you can really maybe assess um, and build other or direct your attention well and, and really assess what it is that you want to be doing um, with the limited time that you have. Yes, and I do find those uh, Sunday morning updates from my uh, my devices Ooh. about how long I've spent on them uh, can can be useful. But do they we can really? Be terrifying. <laughs> I know, I know. Do do we really want no guilt whatsoever? Can't guilt be a useful emotion if it uh, helps to push us into uh, into a better place to be the kind of person we want to be? Absolutely, I think that like. Um many things and emotions there's there's um there's no necessary necessarily good or bad um I've been thinking about that a lot lately and maybe the only one I'm sort of still grappling with is this idea of greed and maybe that's the one that I'm trying to find the the light side of greed and I can't quite get there but for every other emotion I think um there there is definitely um use for them and I think greed uh sorry guilt as you said um 
can be a guide. So when we do feel guilt or we do feel shame, um, it can be helping us to course correct. Absolutely. Um, So it's more just that productivity guilt spiral that we can, when we get stuck in our guilt and we don't use it as a guide and instead we lament um, and, and fall into that inertia that I think that can be really hard to work with. Um, But otherwise it can be a signal, even with something like comparison is another great example of, um, you know, they say that comparison is the thief of joy but in the book I speak about how it can actually be the guide to your secret joy um, if we're comparing ourselves to somebody um, that could be giving us a great signal into the things that we want to be doing and the things that we want to be directing our attention to even <laughs> so that's a, a great way um, to maybe reprioritize. Madeline what advice would you give to your teenage self? So advice to my teenage self is something that I might actually need to be telling myself still, which is to not be um, such a worry wart in many ways. I um, found myself often caught in that standstill of indecision because as a teenager, we're expected to make these huge life decisions and, and have this plan for ourselves. And, and there's this pressure to have it all figured out when really, you know, life happens around us. And so I would um, tell myself to just make any decision and experiment and um, I- embrace the unknown. Uh, and I think that that's advice that I still need today. <laughs> What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I recently had this epiphany where I for a long time thought that if we said no, um, that then that is is um, – being mean or it's not being generous enough um so I'm learning the power of politely declining um and seeing that sometimes we do need to say no we we do need to disappoint other people in order to um say yes to ourselves and so I'm learning um to see a polite decline as something that's not actually mean and not equating those two things when are you most happy I think on a rollicking day. Um, again, rollicking. it's all about rollicking day. <laughs> um, you know, when you might have brunch plans with a friend and then you both decide to do an errand hang, which is where you run errands together. And then, it, you know, um, you walk past a bar in the afternoon and the sun is shining. And so you decide to step in and then you might catch a movie afterwards. A rollicking day full of surprises, I feel like, in our busy, overscheduled lives um, are hard to come by. So I think that that's when I'm most um, exuberant. Do you have any guilty pleasures? I think with this one, in many ways, I was wondering if it is mutually exclusive, this idea of pleasure and guilt. Um, but then I thought of maybe that pairing of wine and too much of it and then the hangover the next day I think is the guilty part. Um, but even then I, I've, I've um, trying to, to separate the two to, to keep pleasure pleasurable um, and even uh, something like wasting time could be a guilty pleasure Um, and knowing that whether it's a hangover or whether it is an hour of faffing, um, you can always turn over a new leaf the next hour and so the guilt can can be, um, yeah, sidelined that way. (laughs) What's the most important thing you do to stay physically and mentally healthy? I definitely say exercise um, and specifically at the moment it's it's running has been really rewarding but exercise and yeah my approach to it um, really changed when I saw exercise as something that I did for energy and creativity and uh, mental health rather than for um, a waist my waist size or a a number on a scale Um, when you see it as this holistic thing that you are doing for your mind just as much for your body that was incredibly motivating and made it far more intrinsically um, rewarding and therefore the the, the most important part, it, the most important thing that I do for both. Um, and running and writing are, are very complementary in terms of endurance and um, 
just making a start sometimes, just putting on those running shoes and heading out the door for a run and then coming back and seeing that, you know, you went for five kilometres or 10 kilometres. It's just, it's such a beautiful parallel to writing where sometimes you just need to address that blank page and dive in. One of my favourite running books that really speaks to this is what I talk about when I talk about running, which is that um, play on Raymond Carver's What We Talk About When We Talk About Love, um, but it's by um, Murakami. And uh, yeah, it really does have this beautiful overlap between writing and running and inspires you to aim towards 10Ks every day. You live in Melbourne, which has lots of uh, wonderful running trails. Do you have uh, good places to run near your home? Yes, I um, I do love a running loop. There's something about that kind of um, perfect enclosure of, of, you know, when you sort of know where you're starting and know where you're finishing. And maybe that goes back again to that metaphor of how you stop and start can be really important for the creative process. Um, So Princess Park is wonderful to run a few laps around. And I love doing park runs um, on Saturdays, which is all around the country um, at eight o'clock in the morning at different parks. Um, And it's a great way to get your time up because you can get into someone's slipstream and run behind them um and that can be really great so often the mary creek or or the princess princess park and and finding a nice loop to do is great finally madeline which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life i think that each day an experience that helps to remind me of of living an ethical life is is this idea of making generous assumptions i think that we can bump up against um so much uh perceived rudeness um or impatience um or slights um in our days and they can be quite heavy for us to carry and so um instead of counting kind of misdemeanors by other people that really in the end, only we wear them. Um, the other people don't know necessarily that we're holding a grudge. I think that we can just make a generous assumption in assuming that people are trying the best they can. And maybe, maybe we get that wrong sometimes. Maybe um, people are out to get us. But I, I think that that's, that's very, very, very unlikely in many cases. And actually, um, there's this wonderful thing called Hanlon's razor, which, you know, never attribute malice um, to which could just be ignorance. And so um, making a generous assumption, I think, frees us up a little bit and therefore we can be good and we can remind ourselves that other people are trying their best and we can too. Madeline Dorr's new book is I Didn't Do the Thing Today. Madeline, thanks so much for taking the time to join me on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you, Andrew, and for all that you do in helping us all live good lives. Likewise. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I reckon you might also like The Past Conversation with Jill Stark, Serena Bird or Lindsay Odes. If you like this podcast conversation, please tell your friends, put something on social media or even give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.